You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, friends, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Today we're going to consider verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. Forgive me if my voice seems a little off today. Uh, dealing with a cold. Didn't know you can get a cold in the summer until I guess you got kids and they can get germs from anywhere and anything and bring them home to mom and dad. What gracious little gifts from these gracious little children. Life is hard to keep up with, especially when you're not feeling too well. Sometimes the pace of life just feels way too quick. Another bill to pay, another extracurricular activities, another long night at work. It feels like each day we wake up in the morning and we look at our calendar and it's like a treadmill that's running at a speed that we know is just a little too fast for us. That we know if I jump on this, I'm not going to be able to keep up, but you got to jump at it anyway. And by the end of the day, you're going to either know you'll fall flat in your face or fly straight off the back. Throughout the book of Colossians, Paul has been teaching about the universal supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. He's been teaching timeless and transcendent truths that have been preached for 20 centuries. Truths like Christ being the one who created all things, being the one who holds all things together and through whom will restore all things one day back to his authority. Timeless and transcendent truths. The message of Christ and his authority is about an authority that truly holds the whole cosmos in order together. But that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant for what goes on in your family kitchen. Christ's authority extends to the reaches of the farthest cosmos and to the conversations you have at your dinner table, with the relationships you have at your dinner table. This week, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, the timeless and transcendent truths of the gospel get personal and practical about our everyday relationships. Marriage, family, workplaces. What's the goal of our relationships in Christ as Christians? What ideal should we be striving for through grace? The goal of our relationships is to become mature in the Lord together. And becoming mature in the Lord together means making the right type of investments into our relationships. Today's message is about learning about what those investments are that we need to make. Moms and dads, what's the right investment you need to make in your kids? Kids, what's the right relationship you need to make in your parents? Husbands and wives, what type of relationship or investment do you need to make in your spouse? And Workers, employees, students, teachers, what type of investment do you need to make into those relationships? So as we do, let's stand together to honor God as we read the scriptures together. This is God's holy word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye of service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You can take your seats, church. The right type of investments, that's what it takes to become mature in the Lord together. But before we talk about these right type of investments, we need to understand four important differences between the ancient culture in which this was written and our modern culture in which we live. So let's understand what these four things are. I could probably preach four separate sermons about these four different since there could be, I think, probably seven unique sermons that come from this text, just from the one sermon that I've written today. Unfortunately, we don't have the time for that. But in order to be faithful to the text that we have, we need to understand the differences between the ancient culture and our culture. So let's look at these four differences. First, household dynamics are dramatically different now from where they, what they were then. For instance... Parents, in September, if your kids are in school, where will they go to be educated? The physical building. Where do you work? The geographical location. If you're an employer, where do you employees live? Is this the physical building that you go to as a church? Do you go to another place? Is that your home Church, in first century Greco-Roman culture, the answer to every one of these questions, where your kids educated, where do you go to work, where do you employees live, where do you go to church, the answer for all of these questions would be home. See, our 21st century of home is like the Ikea version, right? Recreational, safe, comfortable. That wasn't what the home was like in the first century. It wasn't about recreational activities. It was about functional activities. The state didn't do a lot of work in raising good citizens. The home did all of the work. The home did all of the work for productivity and economics. Things were different. Home was simultaneously a place of business, education, employment, boarding, and worship. So as a result, because the home was so functionally driven, the expectations for the relationships in the home is dramatically different in a time where these things don't operate in the home. But regardless of century or society, expectations for husbands and wives, parents and children, employees, employers, should not be determined by the culture around us, but by the gospel that translate into any culture in any time. Household dynamics are dramatically different, but the gospel is the same. Here's the second important difference. Slavery was common in the first century, but it was never endorsed by Jesus or the New Testament writers. I give thanks to God for the men and women who over time have worked to abolish slavery in all of its forms. Yet generally, in those instances where societies have chosen to abolish slavery as an institution, 
it happened in the context of a democratically governed society where individuals had the influence and rights to speak up for others who didn't yet have a voice. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Colossians, did not live in that type of context. He lived under the authority of the Roman Empire, who, when a political threat would uh, breach its society like Jesus, their response was to do what they did to Jesus, execution. So rather than try to radically overthrow an institution, Paul's message of the gospel enabled Christian to radically transform the way they lived within that context. And that allowed this fourth important difference. All people are treated with equal dignity in the gospel, whether slave or child, woman or man. And this was different within the church culture of first century Greco-Roman world than from the non-church culture. See, in the non-church culture, you can study documents that actually tell them how they should operate in their functional home. But in those ancient documents in the first century, the only person that's addressed is the father. Though in those ancient documents about household expectations, there's rules for wives, there's rules for kids, there's rules for slaves. The only person that's addressed in that first century culture that's non-Christian is the father. Because the only thing they considered was order and individuals weren't considered to have personal agency or personal responsibility. That's not the way that the gospel can looks at our homes and our communities though. In the gospel, we're supposed to treat each other with love and with equality and with fairness. That doesn't have any functional value. But in the gospel, we're more than just functional cogs in a wheel. We all have equal dignity, responsibility, agency, because of who we are in Christ. And here's this last fourth important difference. These are simple commands, but they are not simply followed. Notice how it's just, it's stated and just not expanded. Husbands submit, wives love, children obey, fathers don't provoke, bondservants obey, masters treat justly and fairly. It's likely that these were so short because they originated from a verbal tradition that was passed from church to church and not written down yet. And if you're going to have a verbal tradition that's memorable, the best way to enable people to remember it is to keep it short. They're simple commands, but that does not mean that they're simple to follow. They're complex because of the complexity of the sin of human nature. So throughout this message, we're going to consider the simplicity of these commands, but also ask, why do these simple commands not just simply work? So now let's understand what these commands are and what we need to invest into our relationships so that we can become mature in the Lord together. The first relationship that's considered is marriage. Let's look at the text together, verse 18. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We need to invest with love and submission into our marriages if we're gonna become mature 
in the Lord. First, a wife is called in the passage to submit to her husband. What does submission mean? A wife's submission is voluntarily allowing her will to come under the authority of her husband's will so that he can operate as the head of his marriage as the Lord designed marriage to operate. Second, though, a husband is called to love his wife and not be harsh with them. In Ephesians chapter 5, this um, mutual investment of submission and love is compared to the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. The church submits to Christ's authority as its head, so a, a wife should submit to her husband's authority. Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, dying in her place, so in the same way, husbands must love their wives like the church. When a husband loves his wife, he is sacrificing himself in a way that reflects the gospel. Husbands, it, you, you know if you're trying to live by this, and you know if you're refusing to live like this, that this is a demanding command. When a husband loves his wife, he is sacrificing himself in a way that reflects the gospel. His desires, his motives, his plans must be denied through acts of self-giving that first submit to God's will, not our spouse's whims and wishes, that first submits to God's will and then serves his wife's interests before his own. And then there's another command to, to husbands specifically, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I think that's kind of a natural follow-up because it's not easy to deny, to deny ourselves. And if there's something that you want that you know you need to deny for your wife's good, I want to go out and watch the game with the guys. I, I want to stay longer at the office. I want to go get 18 holes in today, but you can't get it. Sometimes it's easy to lash out at the person who you perceive is prohibiting you from getting what your heart selfishly wants. And sometimes the result is you're harsh with the woman whom you're supposed to love. But gospel love invites a godly woman to gladly submit to her husband because when she receives that type of love, She's affirmed in the way that she wants from the man that she gave her heart to to spend the rest of her life with. And she knows that she'll be affirmed and that her home will be led in a way that honors God and that is for the good of her kids. It's fitting in the Lord. It's loving like Christ. Maturity in our marriages means that wives gladly submit to their husbands in the Lord because they're following husbands who gladly sacrifice for their wives like the Lord. Okay, so why doesn't this simple command simply work? 
Paul Tripp is an author who is also a biblical counselor who writes much on relationships and has conferences on marriage and parenting. And his book called, What Did You Expect? Helping Couples Understand Why There's Conflict in Their Marriage. He writes this, the quote is on the screen. He says, I've become more and more persuaded that marriages are fixed vertically. What's wrong in a relationship with God? Before they are, are ever fixed horizontally, what's wrong in a relationship with our spouse? We have to deal with what is driving us, our motivations, our desires. We have to deal with what is driving us before we ever deal with how we are reacting to each other. When Paul Altrip talks about what's driving us, he talks later on that everyone is driven to either worship a certain God, to both worship a certain God and serve a certain kingdom. All of us are worshipers. All of us are servants. But the problems in our marriage first come not because you're a bad communicator, not because you don't know how to plan well. The first problems in our marriage start because we aren't, don't have a mind of worship to worship God and we don't have a kingdom mind to serve the true king, who is the Lord Jesus. See, everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is looking for satisfaction out about in the pursuit of what they consider valuable. Worship is what happens when so many high schoolers today are taking Percocets so they can work harder and hunger, harder and longer and longer to get better grades. Worship is what's happening when people starve themselves to try and fit a lower size of clothes. Worship is what happens when we spend hours and hours taking picture after picture to get the right lighting to get the right amount of likes on social media. Worship is what happens when you stay another hour and then another hour at the office when you know you should go home because you want that next promotion. All of us are worshiping something. It's not just a religious term. Worship is the pursuit of something that we consider valuable because we think it will give us joy. And when we're not seeking the Lord, we're seeking idolatry. Everyone's serving a kingdom, but is it serving the interests of God's kingdom of our, or our own kingdom where we are king and I'm on the throne. If we are not, don't have a mind of worship to worship the Lord and a mind of service to serve the Lord, what happens is we will then turn to our spouse and view them as either an obstacle that's getting in the way of what I want or as someone that I can manipulate to use to get what I need. That's why you isolate yourself and become cold and indifferent to each other. That's why you use manipulative words and tactics to just, that's why sometimes you feel like you're just used. Our spouse, who we should love, becomes an obstacle or a tool. Is this ringing any bells? I can be tempted with these same things. I can be an idolater. I can try and serve my own kingdom. Husband and wife, maybe you need to have a, a conversation this week about this. And maybe you hear that and you're just like, we have talks all the time and it never works. Maybe that's because you're talking about the horizontal things and not the vertical things. 
Maybe that's because you haven't realized yet that the problem isn't first with your spouse and that relationship, but the problem is your relationship with God. The only good use an idol has is to be torn down for tinder to burn. If you have idolatry in your life that is making you distant from your spouse or that is making you manipulate your spouse, friend, you're an idolater and you need to repent. If you're upset that your wife gets in the way, your husband gets in the way of your self-interests to serve your own kingdom, you need to recognize that there's one Lord and one King and it's not you, it's Christ Jesus. Maybe you need to sit down and ask yourself, does our calendar and our bank account reflect whether we're worshiping God or worshiping idols? Does it show that we're serving our own self-interest and serving Christ's? When you first focus on that relationship with the Lord, then you'll be able to focus on your spouse and invest with the love and submission that we're simply commanded to offer. And when we recognize the love that was given to us in Christ, that he died for us, that he gave his life for us, and what that means for me, that he served my interests and didn't look to his own, and that I have eternal life by faith in him, and that I'm forgiven, and that I can have hope, and that I can have peace, and he did that for me, then I can look to my spouse and give to them what they need. Then and only then. This will allow a bedrock for our marriage that will, to build a foundation to invest into our spouse with love and submission so that our marriages can flourish and so that our kids can flourish. That's the second type of relationship that we need to learn to invest in. We need to invest love and submission into our marriages and we need to invest grace and obedience into our families so that we can become mature in the Lord together. Let's look at the back of the text with me, verse 20 and 21. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Parents for now are just like, yeah. All right, well, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. There's a lot of people here in the church uh, right now who are elementary and high school and I'm really appreciative for my elementary and high school friends. I got to spend a lot of time with them in youth ministry when I was working in that part of our church. To my uh, grade school friends, this command, this simple command is for you. But you know, it's not really simply played out, is it? It simply says, children, obey your parents in some things. No, sorry, wait. A few things, no, sorry. Everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. Obeying your parents means when they ask you to do something that honors God, you do it the first time. To my grade school friends, your parents are given to you by God to help you learn to obey God as you obey them. That's why it pleases the Lord to obey your parents because as you learn to obey God-honoring parents, you will learn to obey God. And 
parents, specifically fathers here in the text, are commanded not to provoke your children. I always think it's a little laughable when I've watched uh, clips of the way in before professional combat match, like boxing or MMA, right? You might have seen this before. Before an MMA fight or a boxing fight, the two fighters get on stage and they weigh themselves to make sure that they're in the right parameters of their weight class, and then they stand side by side and take pictures with their fists up, and then they go their separate ways. No, that's not what happens. Most of the times they actually like, like lash out at each other, but everyone's get surprised like, oh no, don't do that. But if you get two people on stage that are gonna be fighting each other, why are you surprised that they're actually fighting each other now? Parents, if you react to your kids in a way that's oppositional, that puts them on the defense, don't be surprised when they get on the offense. What were you thinking? Who do you think you are? Is that the way you treat your father? If we react to our kids oppositionally by some show of strength, we shouldn't be surprised when they start fighting back. And the reality is, parents, most of us are bigger than our kids for now. Most of us are smarter than our kids for now. If you want to stand toe-to-toe with your kid, you're going to win. But the goal isn't to win. Because when you win, they lose. And when they lose, what they lose is a discouraged heart. What they lose is the heart to actually want to obey you. What do I have to do to please my parents? They're never actually there when I actually need help. Why even try at all? Maturity in the family means that children are obeying their parents in all things, and parents are graciously doing everything they can to encourage their hearts of their children towards obedience. So, why doesn't this simple command simply work? In another book that Paul Tripp wrote called Parenting, you can, it's about parenting, he, commentating on Deuteronomy chapter 6, he offers a definition of what the job and the calling of all parents is before God to do. The quote is on the screen. This, parents, is our job, our calling. Your work as a parent is a thing of extreme value because God has designed that you would be a principal consistent and faithful tool in his hands for the purpose of creating God consciousness and God submission in your children. Parents, that's what Paul Tripp says, commentating on Deuteronomy chapter six, is our calling and our job to create kids who are God conscious. That is Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six says, we train our kids with wisdom to be able to acknowledge God in all of their ways. God submissive, that in all of their ways, they're not seeking to worship idols. They are not seeking to serve their own kingdom. They're seeking to be submissive to serve God. I saw uh, this trend going through social media this past week. Maybe you did too. 
People apparently like seeing what they'll look like when they're really super old. You probably noticed it yourself, that uh, app called Face App that can age your picture so that you look maybe like 30 or 40 or 50 years older than yourself. I never actually tried it, wanted to, but actually I didn't want to at all. <laughs> but when I saw other people posting this, a friend of mine was up at um, another friend of mine's cottage whom I was always at as a child and he saw a picture of me not when I was super old, but when I was actually super young. This is little itty-bitty 14-year-old Jason Lockett Camp, right there in the middle. And when I was a kid, um, didn't have a lot of God consciousness. Didn't have a lot of God submission. I, when I was 14 years old, kind of lived my life in the same frame of reference that the main character of video games have, or people playing main characters of video games have. Not a lot of consequences in video games, right? If you want to play Fortnite, but you lose the battle royale, not a lot of consequences, you'll join into the next battle royale. You want to play level in Super Mario Maker, great, you might lose a life, doesn't matter, there'll be another life available. See, video game developers want you, even though to have a to have some form of consequences when you can't follow the gameplay. But it really doesn't matter because you can just start again. That's kind of the way that I lived my life. I didn't really consider the consequences for the decisions that I made as a 14-year-old boy. I, I didn't really think about what it meant when I made decisions about friends that I had. I didn't really realize that it, the consequences that would happen with the... Uh, productivity and, and managing my time for school, but in the process, in a lot of instances when I could have and should have obeyed my parents, I actually suffered really bad consequences. Suffered consequences physically, socially, educationally, but most important, and I didn't even realize it, I was suffering a lot of spiritual consequences. I didn't realize that the sadness I was feeling wasn't because people didn't include me, but because my identity wasn't in Christ. I didn't realize that the consequences that would affect my soul, my soul, when I made choices about friends, entertainment, time management, dating, <laughs> didn't understand consequences, but I thought I had it all together. The closer... This is a freebie for you, grade school students, all right? I'm 30 years old, and I hope this will be the best thing you learn this summer, all right? The legal adulthood is 21. The closer I got to 21, the more I thought I didn't need my parents and knew more than them. The farther I've grown up from 21, the more I'm realizing even now that I still rely on my parents and knew so little when I was younger. Some moms and dads right now are saying, just like, amen, please. <laughs> Parents, how can we help our kids get this? How can we help our kids live with God consciousness and God submission? In his book, Paul Tripp tells us that we have two things that God has given us to be able to guide our kids this way. Two things that I would say must be saturated with daily prayer for our kids. Because if it's based on your effort, it, it can't be based on your effort. 
Because salvation is from the Lord and sanctification is from the Lord. We're a tool, but we're a tool in God's hands. So we need to use these things that God has given us, but we need to be saturated in prayer for our kids. Lord, help us. Here are the two things God has given us to be able to help our kids be God-conscious and God-submissive. One, God has given us the law's righteous standard for living and the gospel's gracious standard for forgiveness. Parents, you need to raise your kids with the standard of living given in the law of Moses. If you don't know what that is, start with the Ten Commandments. This is the way God wants us to live. But the law in itself can't change us. It can only show us what we should do and how we can't do it. The gospel and the grace of the gospel is what does change us. The message of the law says this is the way God expects us to live and there are consequences if it's not followed. But the message of the gospel says Christ suffered your consequences so that you could be forgiven and turn back to the good way because of his kind grace. Parents, are you using only law? Are you using your own law? Paul Tripp says this, God's law gets replaced by our own law, a law driven by our own craving for affirmation, control, peace, success, and reputation. Sometimes the burden we're putting on our kids to follow isn't a standard of living that God wants for them. It's what's just gonna make our life comfortable. We need to use God's law, but we can't just use the law because all you're gonna do is raise a really good Pharisee. You need to use grace. You might tell your kid that they need to uh, apologize to their, their sibling. Do they know that you will apologize to your spouse when you wrong them? You might tell your kid that they need to apologize to you as their parent. Do they see you apologizing and asking forgiveness and grace from your heavenly father? And Jesus taught us this principle. He who loves much forgives much. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. The only way that you can balance law and grace in your kid's life is when you recognize your own need for it. When I recognize my own need for it. And kids, my grade school friends, it's, it's, a, it's not a bad thing to admit that you don't have it all together. Because the older you get, you'll realize the less you do have it all together. Believe in the Lord Jesus and then trust your parents and follow your way for your good, their way for your good. We need to invest into our relationships, love and submission into our marriages, grace and obedience into our kids. And then finally this, we need to invest with integrity and equality into our workplaces. See, the context here is about a slave and a master where the master actually owned someone as property. That doesn't happen. So even if you have the worst boss, you're not living in his home, right? You don't owe a five-year debt to be repaid to him and during the time you're his property. Things are different in our time. But I think there still is adequate application. Notice, though, that the most time given in this text is actually to the bondservant, to the slave. The slave is given the most commands and the most space. Why is that? Paul 
wrote this letter to be delivered to a man named Philemon, who was a pastor of a church in his house in Colossae. And the person who delivered the letter to Philemon was a man named Onesimus, who was Philemon's slave, who stole something from him and ran away. But when he ran away, Paul found him, shared the gospel, and he was saved. And Paul told him, you need to make what right what you got wrong. So when Philemon opens this letter and reads to the church, bond servants obey in everything, your earthly masters, and also masters treat your bond servants justly. Everyone else is like, like this is really personal for this church. And it's really personal for us too. Because it has tremendous application for our work ethic and the way that we operate with authority in our workplaces and our schools. I would say and summarize that the way that we're supposed to do it from this text is that we need to operate with integrity and equality in our workplaces. As a quick summary, here are eight ways verse 22 to verse 4-1 shows that we can invest into our workplaces with integrity and equality. Whether you're a remote worker, a self-employed worker, a teacher, a student, a boss, a, in a cubicle, a bank teller, eight ways we can live by integrity in our workplaces. And it might be hard to write all these down. Don't worry, we'll send them out in the small group questions today. Number one, we can have integrity in our workplaces by obeying in all things unless it's disobedient to God. Number two, by working hard when no one is looking. Three, by working from the heart no matter what the job or what the task. Next, by working hard because I know I'm accountable to God. By trusting that grades and paychecks aren't my ultimate reward, but the promise of an inheritance in heaven is. By refusing to cheat and cut corners. By treating all my employees and students equally by correcting unequal treatment when it happens, by recognizing that even if I have authority, I'm still under Christ's authority. This is integrity. This is equality. Are you living like this? Okay, I have a favor to ask, and I will never ask this ever again, so I would encourage as many of you as you want to participate. If you have a smartphone, you can actually take it out right now. Can someone tell me the time on their phone? Sam, what's the time? 10.05. I have 10.07. Which one's right? You, you, well, okay, I'd say, yeah, you, you why? <laughs> All my is, uh, watch is intentionally set two minutes ahead because I want to know that, if, that I'll be on time. Phones are generally set through the internet to like satellites and things like that, but there's this generally accepted standard of time, but that generally accepted standard of time that governs all of our phones is set ought to a specific clock in the U.S. Naval Observatory created by a doctor named Dr. Demetrios Metaskis. I think he's Greek. Congratulations, other Greek people, you get more reputation. Dr. Demetrios Metaskis created machines with, that measure the frequency of lasers that shoot atoms. 
because the U.S. military must all be on a precise time because it's literally life or death a second off or late or early. And these clocks are so theoretically accurate, uh, so accurate that theoretically for the next 300 million years, these clocks will not lose a second or gain a second. Constant, precise. We have a clock in our office in the church that every week gains like five minutes. <laughs> this is what integrity is. That my character, no matter where I am, at home or at work, when the boss is there, when the boss is not there, it's so constant, it's so accurate that it doesn't change no matter where I am or who I'm with. Becoming mature together in our workplaces means no matter what the job, no matter what the assignment, no matter if I like social studies or not, I'm doing this task with integrity and heartily and I'm working so that others can succeed in doing their job because I know I'm working to please God. So why doesn't this simple command simply work? In his book, A Proverbs Driven Life, Anthony Salvaggio says this, the quote is on the screen, left to ourselves, we will quickly gravitate to one extreme or the other. The self-centered sluggard who places work too low on his life's ladder of priorities or the idolatrous workaholic who places it too high, above where God would have it and above our responsibility to others. We don't work heartily often because we believe, we, we forget who we're working for and we forget what our reward is. The self-centered lazy person believes that they're serving themselves and that recreation is the reward for their work. They're just working for the weekend. Boss is gone at 4.30? Me too. The idolatrous, overworking person, uh, person serves themselves, believing that reputation or greater compensation is the reward for their work. Recreation is not the reward for your work. Reputation is not the reward for, reward for your work. Even compensation isn't a reward, it's what you're due. Your reward as a Christian is the inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom. And your hard work doesn't earn that. The work of Jesus Christ has secured that. And we work because we have the promise of that to honor God as people who are redeemed servants to him as our master. Wherever you are, you're not working for your teacher, for your professor, for your boss, for yourself. You're working for the Lord. So don't store up your treasures here on earth. Live like you got a real treasure in heaven because you do. And you don't report to your boss. You don't report to your teacher. You report to the Lord. We must invest with integrity and equality into our workplaces. Are you doing that? We must invest with grace and obedience into our families. Are you doing that? We must invest with love and submission in our marriages. Are we doing that? Allow me to close with this idea. On the way that I drive to church, I pass, could pass by up to three currently being built subdivisions or condo developments. And I've noticed something. I don't have the answer why, maybe you do. But have you noticed in new subdivisions, 
that as they're building up new homes, there's generally one old, dilapidated, derelict, run-down home that the developer just keeps on the property. I don't know why they do that, but, but there's all of these like beautiful, pristine, luxury homes and then like a scene for a horror movie right there. Sometimes that can be what our family feels like. When I scroll through social media and see other couples, when, when I see other kids and their good grades and their activities, when I see other dads going out to games that I can afford for my family, it's like I'm living in my family's this derelict, run-down home, and I have all of these luxury families all around me. In the Lord, by his grace, what matters isn't the exterior. What matters is the foundation that we are building on. And you can build your family and build your work on a foundation that actually allows you to become mature together. We will fail at love and submission. We will fail at grace and obedience. We will fail at integrity and equality. Grace propels us, but we're being built on the foundation of the Lord. Let's build our relationships on the Lord together. Let's build the foundation of our relationships on him, our marriages, our families, our workplaces. Then and then alone will we become mature together in Christ. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness towards us the immeasurable riches of your kindness in Christ Jesus, which you will give us in the coming ages is is so great, Lord God. But thank you, Lord, that the hope of, of what's coming for us in the future can motivate us to live differently now. And the knowledge of your authority in heaven can motivate us to live in submission to you here. And God, I pray that that would mark our relationships in the church. God, I pray that that would mark our families, it would mark our workplaces, that it would mark our marriages, Lord God. And where it doesn't, would we be marked by grace, by forgiveness, by love. Thank you that you've given us an adequate and stable and strong foundation in Christ Jesus. Help us to build our lives on him. In Jesus' name, amen.